I'm excited to share this message with you from the second day, week in uh, Genesis. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> so if you'll follow along on your device uh, or on your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. If you were here last week, how many verses did I cover? One. Yeah, today we're going to cover a whole lot more, so we'll be sure we won't be doing this for the next 30 years. So Genesis, but I am going to read verse 1 again just to give us the full context, the most, most read verse in all the world there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was the morning, and that was the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and the there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he, saw, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens and separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps 
on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that this is not legend, this is not myth, this is historical fact, this is the way that you spoke the world into existence. So Father, help us to acknowledge you this morning, not just as our Savior, not just as our Lord, not just as our King, but today let us recognize you as our Creator. You made us for a purpose. Help us to seek and fulfill that purpose, and we ask this for the glory of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So recently, uh, a couple months ago actually, we, Tammy and I had a, a, a patio slab poured on the backside of our house. There was a covering that was already there, but no grass would grow under the covering. So every time you went out the back door, I mean, there was a little small snap slab, but there was just dirt. And the dogs would track in dirt all the time. We would track in dirt. It felt like we were sweeping the kitchen floor like twice a day just to keep up with all the dirt. And then we had a slab, a big slab that went from end to end of the house and, and about 14 feet out. And it's really nice. And, you know, we've had some barbecues and stuff out there. And it's been really cool. And it's been a major improvement. But Tammy said to me last week, said, hey, Gary, come and look at something. I'm like, what? And we went out there and there's a hairline crack already on it. And we're like, oh, man, what happened? Well, evidently with this drought and then all the rain coming to back, the foundation shifted, and now we have a hairline crack in this patio. And I sent pictures to the crew, the company that built the thing, and do you think they answered my texts and my calls? No. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, when the foundation's messed up, who do you go to? You know, and you, you, we see a whole lot more than a hairline crack in the world today, Right? We see a world that is really messed up. I mean, really messed up. And especially in just in the last few years, it's like we were going downhill. We all knew it. We're going downhill. And all of a sudden, boom, we just went, the roller coaster went straight down. And it's just in the last few years, and it's just been really crazy. And who do we go to to repair these, uh, these foundation problems? We go, we go back to the foundation, and that's Genesis. Genesis is not just the first book in the Bible. It's there for a purpose. And is the foundation for all the other 65 books. So this is really important stuff that we're learning here today. And so Genesis explained, as we learned last week, 14 major themes. And I'm just going to, for the sake of review and for those who weren't here last week, just to, to tell you that all these big questions are answered. For example, where did the universe come from? Scientists keep changing their minds and keep coming up with all different theories. And that is all they are. It's just theories. I remember when I was in fifth grade, my social studies class, Mrs. Schmidt, and she started teaching about evolution, and I, as a young believer, raised my hand, and I said, but this is just a theory, right? And she said, no, this is fact. And I'm like, that's not good science. Science means you were there, you can observe it, you can put it in a test tube, you can repeat it. That's what science is. Other than that, it's just theories. And the Bible doesn't contradict any scientific facts, but it does contradict a lot of scientific theories. We also find that the whole idea of order and complexity is found in the Bible. And yet scientists know that this is a scientific principle, and yet they contradict it all the time. They say that order comes from chaos, and God says, no, no. You know, things start off orderly, and they go in decline. That's the second law of thermodynamics. We have the explanation of our solar system and how all that came into a being and how it even has that sudden appearance, which scientists are baffled by. The whole idea of how our atmosphere works and the hydrosphere, 
The whole idea of life and where it came from and how it also has a sudden appearance. You know, Darwin taught that all these changes in evolution came through gradual, gradual changes. Scientists have thrown that in a trash can. Now they believe in what's called, um, uh, e- um, what's the word, equilibrium. Um, anyway, it's a theory that basically quantum leaps in changes. That it, it wasn't just a gradual thing from a fin to slowly to fingers. It was like, boom, one was born and it's like hand. You know, punctuated equilibrium is now their new theory. And that Darwin is not even right anymore on that. The whole idea where mankind came from and diversity came from and different languages and stuff came from. The very concept of what a marriage is, is found in the Bible. We can't define it. God already did. Evolution has no explanation for the incredible amount of evil that humanity is capable of. And how we are so much, even though we are the most supposedly evolved, why are we the most evil of all the animals on the planet? Science has no explanation for it. The Bible does. Where all the different types of government came from. The Bible talks about that. And, and, the God, and by the way, the Bible doesn't endorse any particular type of government. I don't want to get off on a tangent on this. Let me just tell you, the, the only perfect government is a benevolent dictatorship, which no dictators on this planet are benevolent. They're all evil because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Who will be the first and only benevolent dictator? King Jesus, right. And so that, the world will not know uh, that until then. Where all the different world religions came from, the Bible makes that very clear how they got started. Where God's chosen people came from. One-fifth of Genesis is about where the world came from. Four-fifths of Genesis is about Israel and its formation. The Bible clearly explains where languages came from. You know, it's interesting that, again, anthropologists, they study language, and they cannot find a culture that talked like, me, man, you, woman. You know, that, that type of just barbaric talk. They all started sophisticated, talking in full sentences. How did that happen? It's called the Tower of Babel. You know, we can't find ancient writings where people had just really, really um, uh, barbaric or like caveman type thing. They did draw pictures, but as far as a language, instantaneously they all appeared. And it's interesting that they said that Moses couldn't have wrote Genesis because there was no written language when Moses was around. That the written language came 1,800 years after Moses, so Moses couldn't have done that. And then what did archaeologists go and find? That 300 years before Moses, they found ancient writings where people were writing in full sentences. So once again, science and their theories are wrong. The Bible is right. We find out where culture comes from. The Bible explains urbanization, agriculture, metallurgy, and all these different things dealing with animals and how God, was, God created man to have dominion over the animals. All these things that make up culture are clearly explained. Where did all the different nations come from? And why do we divide into nations? And he goes into great details. He takes, you see the, the red boxes there? Who, who are, whose names are in the red boxes there? Noah's sons. And we're like, oh, that's just legend and myth and whatever. But then you find that the Bible was accurate. And it explains where those three different sons went. And how the three different types of people spread over the planet. And, and archaeology backs all of this up again. And so you see the rise of nations and how we tend to form into those groups. 
as not, not just clans and villages, but we, we organize in different ways, and God actually promotes nations for a purpose. And yet you see these origins of everything that God started off as good, but man has destroyed and has turned into evil. And we see that our world, it's in deep trouble. It's in deep trouble. And so where do we go? We need to get back to the foundation. Jesus made this very clear. I talked about this last week, but this is worth repeating because Jesus said this. He said, if you believed Moses, and by that he means if you believe the first five books, the book of Moses, we call them five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Jews called it the book of Moses. The Pentateuch was one book to them, but there's nothing wrong with the way we divide up to make it, to, to make it referenceable. And he says, if you would believe him, Believe that God said, I spoke the worlds into existence, that I established Israel as my people, that, I, that there was a literal Adam, a literal Eve, and a literal fall. If you would believe that, you would believe me. He said, for he, and he didn't refer to Moses as a group of rabbis who wrote the book of, Mo, you know, the book of Moses during one of the Babylonian captivities, which is what liberal theologians teach. They don't believe Moses actually wrote this. Jesus did. <laughs> Jesus says, he wrote of me. And he says, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That's why it's so very, very important that we believe in the book of Genesis as being literal history. Because it's the foundation for believing Jesus. And so Jesus didn't think all this was myth and legend. He referred to Adam as an actual person. He referred to Moses as an actual person. These aren't legends and myths. And what's really interesting is, Jesus said something later. He said that... Um, Wisdom is justified by her children. That's a, a parabolic statement that basically says, says if there's a certain type of thinking, you can judge whether that certain type of thinking is accurate or not by what it produces. Like, I can tell what kind of parents you are by your children. And you're like, oh, sorry, Gary. <laughs> anyway, but you can see what it produces, right? Well, it's interesting in churches who start teaching that the six days of creation aren't real. They're ju it's just a poem. It's just a legend. It's a myth. Within one generation, that church also no longer believes in the de death, burial, resurrection of Christ. It's been proven. So you throw Genesis in the trash can, you can throw the Gospels in the trash can. It's just a matter of time. It's interesting how it produces that. Um, so God said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and this is what took Albert Einstein... You know, it took 1,900 years for a man to figure out, wait a minute, time, space, and matter. Right, there it is, right there in Genesis chapter 1. That in the beginning was time, the heavens was space, and the earth was matter. And we see this trinity in, that's right there with God's thumbprint on it. And that how time, space, and matter form what we know as reality. And it looks just like the trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God designed the whole universe to be that way. In fact, we see a trinity of trinities, that time is past, present, and future. Space is height, width, and depth, and matter is solid, liquid, gas. Man, you see trinities all over our universe where God's saying, hey, I'm trying to teach you about myself. So we move into verse 2, and this is like a very controversial verse. In fact, some people really have a hard time with the way Genesis is written. Because it talks about God created heavens and earth, and then all of a sudden, like, it's like he starts over, and people are like, wait, is this two creations? 
or why, is, why does God seem like he's starting over or whatever? It's just good journalism. If, if, if you read in, in the, the newspaper or you're scrolling on Yahoo Sports or something like that, and it says, last night the, the Houston Astros came from behind for a dramatic 11-10 win. And then the next paragraph goes, the scoring started in the third inning with you know, a Kyle Tucker and a, a double, whatever. Like, wait a minute, I thought they won. And now it's talking about what happened in the third inning. That's just good journalism. It tells you the whole story. And then it goes back and says, okay, now here's how it happened. And yet when the Bible does that, which is classic journalism, they're like, wait a minute, he's starting over. What happened? And it's like, how is it we put a, one standard on the Bible, but we put a different standard on the newspaper? You know, all good journalists start off with the first paragraph telling you the whole story in general, and now let's dig in and, go, and let's go chronologically after that. Um, so the word, the, it says that the, the earth was without form, and void. This is like, imagine a, a potter taking a big lump of clay, and he's going to make it in this, a beautiful vase, but right now it's just a lump of clay. God spoke basically the material of the universe, the particles, the atoms, the neutrons, the protons, he spoke them in existence, but now he's going to shape it. So it, it's without form, it's void, and darkness was over the deep and notice that the darkness is over the face of the deep, but it's also over the face of the water, showing that they're the same thing. But a lot of people want to read into this as if there's something really weird going on, and here's something really bad, you know, as if the earth got messed up, and now God's going to start over. I, I don't see that in this passage here. In fact, I see that what, what's right in the middle of that verse, the Spirit of God is here. You don't see any reference to Satan, evil, and all that stuff like that. There, there's darkness because God is starting and he's going to separate the, the light from the day and all those things like that. But notice what's happening here. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is hovering over the waters of the earth. And the word, some translations say fluttering. What kind of animal does that make you think of? A bird, right. The, the Spirit of God is like hovering, flapping its wings, if you will, and, cause, and there's even the implication that there's wind involved, which is what a fluttering would, would create. And so God is in control, and, and he's moving over this. And you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each intricately evolved, involved in the creation. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it says, The Lord is like an eagle that stirs up its nest, flutters, same word, flutters, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, and bearing on its pinions. So the Holy Spirit is, is like a bird, if you will. Does that sound familiar? We'll talk about that more in a second. Um, so in Luke, it, the angel talking to Mary says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Same concept here, like a bird with its wings overshadowing its young. How many times did Jesus, it says, it said he stood over Jerusalem, and he wept. And he said, Jerusalem, over Jerusalem, you know, if you would just repent, he said, I would be like a mother hen hovering over you like chicks. And you see that pattern over and over in the Bible. It's not only there at the birth of Jesus, but you see it at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. See the picture here? It's being, going back to creation. And behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a bird, a dove, and coming to rest or hovering over him. You see how that it keeps going back to Genesis all, all throughout the Bible. And this, the picture of Jesus' baptism is like the new creation has come. 
If any man is found in Christ, he's a new creation. New creation has come. Jesus' ministry is beginning. And just like the Holy Spirit of God hovered over the planet before it was at its very beginning, now the Holy Spirit is hovering over at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's not a, a dark, creepy picture there in verse 2. It's a beautiful picture. Here's another beautiful thing. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus has sent the disciples. He's t- told them to go into the upper room. He says, I'm going to go, but I'm going to send to you my comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, and you'll be filled with power from on high. And so when Pentecost arrives, look at that. They're all in one place. What does that sound like? The waters were all in one place, okay? And watch what happens here to the people of Pentecost. And God said, so you see that reference there? That's what Pentecost is copying here, because this is the beginning of the empowerment of the church. So let the waters be gathered into one place. And where are all the believers of Christ? They're in one place at Pentecost. And now suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Does that sound familiar? The, the Spirit of God was fluttering, causing a wind over the earth, and now all of a sudden a wind is coming again at the beginning of the empowerment of the church, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and it divided the tongues as they appeared to them, and they rested like a bird would rest like a, a, at the creation, at the, the, the Holy Spirit hovering over Mary when she conceived at the beginning of the conception, and now the Holy Spirit hovering over the baptism, and now the Holy Spirit hovering over the church. You see this... this re- this uh, picture of creation happening over and over again. And it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Beautiful picture of what God's doing here in the church, and it keeps referencing back to creation. So back to verse 2, it says, that Without form and void and darkness. A lot of, again, a lot of people look at this and say, Oh, this is when bad things are happening. And a lot of people will read into this. There was a, a pastor in 19... 19- 10, his name was Thomas Chalmers. He was the founder of the Free Church of Scotland. And he was a conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing preacher. But he's being confronted with this new world philosophy called evolution. And he's like really struggling with it because he's believing all the science that says that all this happened over millions of years. But he's reading his Bible going, wait a minute, six days of creation. And I believe this is literal six days, but my, all my scientific friends are saying, no, it can't be six days. You know, it had to be millions and millions of years. So he scans the Bible looking for a place to fit in evolution, and he finds it in verse 2. For 1,800 years, nobody believed in a gap theory. Nobody believed that verse 2 was talking about millions of years. But now all of a sudden, Thomas Chalmers decides this is the place, this is where all this is happening, and this is before the six days of creation. So evidently, in verse 2, there's millions of years. And of course, now we know millions of years is not even enough, is it? It has to be billions of years. And that's when they inject it. And Christians never believed this until they had to compromise with evolution and, and give in to that theory. So in verse 2, there's a lot of different theories about what is happening in verse 2 and also what's happening in the subsequent days. What is a day? First of all, again, as I mentioned, it's the gap theory. They believe in verse 2, there's God spoke the worlds into existence without form and void, and now evolution is happening. And that's going to take millions of billions of years, and then God is going to all of a sudden turn and, and create. Which, again, those two don't deal with anything. Now, there's some people who also believe that in this gap, maybe this is when Satan came down to earth. We'll talk about that in a second. There's, there's some problems with that. It's possible, but I, I don't 
totally buy into that. Um, I'm pushing the button here, but can you advance the slide for me? After the gap theory, see that right there? Okay, I see it now. So then there's what's called the day-age theory, that each day of creation, those six days, isn't really a literal day. It's representing a whole age, which could be millions of years. The first day, you know, 100 million here, and then the second day, 100 million here, and all that. And, and they said each day doesn't literally mean 24 hours. Well, there's a problem with that. The... Um, I'll just let me go over the views here. Well, the, the day-age theory, the problem with that is 2,295 times the Bible says the word day. All of them, except nine, mean a literal 24-hour days. Say, so, well, what about the nine? Okay. You know, sometimes the Bible talks about as in the day of Noah, okay, or the day of the coming of the Lord. And in those cases, it doesn't mean a literal 24-hour day. It's just like when Lauren says to his grandkids, hey, back in my day, he's not talking about a 24-hour day. Okay, well, what makes the difference between those nine and the other 2,000 and some? It's all about context, context. But God goes out of his way to tell you the context of Genesis. He will tell you six times the evening and the morning were the first day. He's saying, hey, the sun went down, the sun came back up, 24-hour cycle. I'm talking about a 24-hour day. And he's going to say it over and over again so that you get it. And I'm not talking about that. People will go, refer to 1 Peter where it says, A day with the Lord is as what? A thousand years and a thousand years a day. Well, so are we talking about 6,000 years? We know that's not enough time for evolution. And again, the key to good Bible interpretation is context. What is Peter talking about? He's talking about prophecy. He's not talking about creation. He's not talking about evolution. He's not talking about a day-age theory. Then there's this other theory here. It's that this is a matter of a literary device. Moses is not trying to tell you how the world began literally. He's trying to basically use this literary device to convey some theology, and it's just poetry with theology laced in it. And, and in fact, I think the, uh, I, as much as I like um, the Bible Project, I think they lean this direction here, not just lean, they're heavily into that. So have your antennas on when you listen to that. I'm not, I still recommend that you listen to the Bible Project and do all their videos and things like that. But I think they lean to the, just a literary device because they look at the world around them and they see all these other creation stories that seem similar and they think the Bible just copied them. <laughs> Why is it that they copied the Bible? You know, it's like we always give the benefit of doubt to the others, not to, to God's word. And then there's the fourth interpretation, which is the one I, I believe, and which one God makes very clear. It's literal 24-hour days. And again, that's why he went so far out of his way to say the evening and the morning were the first day. Not the first age, not the first eon, not the first billion years. He's making it very clear. And let me just ask you a question. If you believe in God... Can he not do anything? Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he didn't have a problem with the earth being made in six, everything being made in six days. In fact, he thought, what took so long? Why would it take God 24 hours to do anything? It's because God was purposely taking his time. He, he could have spoke the world's in existence and all that in, in a nanosecond. But he chose to spread them out, and that's what Augustine struggled. He never struggled with, you know, is it millions of years or billions of years? So, 
It says the earth was without form and void and darkness. And some people say, could this be where Satan entered the world? We know that Satan fell. The Bible does not tell us when. When did Satan fall? If you go to Isaiah 14, 12, he says, how are you fallen from heaven, O day star? Some translations say Lucifer. Lucifer just means the glowing one, which is why we have the translation day star, and son of the dawn. How are you cut down to the ground, okay, or to the earth, if you will? And this is the one who laid the nations low, because Satan wreaked habit on the nations after that. And then you look at Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus said to them, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. Well, if you fall from heaven, where do you fall to? To the ground, to the earth. And that's not too big of a leap because we see the serpent in the garden. And we know, according to Revelation chapter 4, that the serpent is the dragon who was also Satan. They're all one. We're not forcing the characters here. They're all the same. So Jesus says, I, he's saying basically, hey, I'm not just 33 years old. I'm from the beginning of time. I was there when Satan fell. So the question is, okay, when did Satan fall? Well, we don't know. And all we can do is a little bit of sanctified speculation, but you can't become dogmatic on any of this. But let's say God said, I'm going to speak the world into existence. And the angel's like, well, why would you do that, God? Because I'm going to glorify myself in creation. And I'm going to make the crowning jewel of my creation man. I'm going to make him in my image, and he's going to glorify me. And Satan's like, well, I want to be like the Most High. Isn't that what he said? Why can't I be involved? Why can't I get some of, in, in on the action? And then he rebels, and one-third of the angels rebel with him, and God cast him out of heaven not like some long, drawn-out battle. How was it? Like lightning. <laughs> Boom. And where did he go? He went to earth. Could he have gone during verse 2? Maybe. Maybe not. We don't know. But the problem is with some people is when you start that gap there, then some people want to pour millions of years into it. And that doesn't have to be. Satan could fall like lightning, and then God starts beginning creation. It, they both could be there. Or Satan could have fell any time. It could have been that God created Adam and Eve, gave them a command, all that stuff, and then Satan rebelled and was cast down to earth. We, we really don't know. There's, there, there's a lot of different, all we can do is speculate. So it's interesting that God said, let there be light. God's word is powerful. Okay? God can say things and they happen. God speaks the world into existence. And so God's word is powerful. And you see this pattern over, over and over again. That God will say something and it happens. But when he created man, did, it, did God, God say, let there be man? No. What word does it say he used? And God took the dust of the earth and formed him. You see, he speaks everything into existence, but he takes his hands, metaphorically, and forms a man. Showing a much more personal touch. Because he formed man in his image. None of... Else creation is made in his image in the sense that it has an everlasting soul. Now, it is in his image in the sense that there's trinities where he saw that. But God shows this incredibly intense, intimate, personal touch by forming man and like he would form clay. And God wants to be intimately involved in our lives. 
God wants to be intimately involved in your life. To be, He would be the closest person to you. Even closer than your spouse or any one of your children or your best friend. God wants to form your life. And God wants to be there in, in the closest way you can imagine. And so God said, let there be light. The very first thing that God created is light. Now, there's, in theology, there's something called the doctrine of first mention. That the first thing God says about anything is the most important thing about that thing. For example, what is the first thing the Bible says about God? In the beginning, God's eternal, God created, when it's talking about who he was, God created. So therefore, the first thing we know about who God is, is he's our creator. It could have said God's our savior, he's our Lord, he's our king. But no, the most important thing about God is he is the creator. Because get this, if he's not your creator, why should he have any right to tell you what to do? But if he says, hey, I made you, you wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for me. Therefore, we owe everything to him. We are obligated to obey him. You see, he couldn't be our creator, or he couldn't be our savior unless he first was our creator. He couldn't be our Lord unless he was our creator. He could be our king, our master, any of those things, unless he was creator first. So now we shift gears. What, why is it that the very first thing God created was light? Because God's setting a, a, a pattern here for, for the universe. And skeptics could say, well, how could God, and you read this all the time on YouTube people, YouTube people will say this, and you'll read it, and skeptics, evolutionists, and atheists will say, oh yeah, well how could there be light before God created the sun? Okay, I could turn off all the lights in this room. Is there still light in the universe? Do, do the lights... They're just a, a tool of, of the, um, to conduct light. You see, light is an electromagnetic wave. And electromagnetic waves and all kinds of waves, sound waves, radio waves, all stuff are all throughout the universe. But then they have certain instruments they use to conduct those things. They don't create them. The sun is just one object that conducts light. So is the sun, our sun, the only source of light in the universe? No. In fact, it's also interesting that if you go to Revelation, when God recreates the heavens and earth, the old heaven and old earth are burned up, and, and God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and he puts down the, the city, the new Jerusalem, it says that there's no need of a sun or a moon to shine up, because why? The glory of God gives it light. So God is the light, and he could have been the light of the world then, before he created a sun and moon that would be instruments to conduct light, just like a flashlight conducts light, a star conducts light, a moon reflects light, a sun generates light, but God created the electromagnetic waves all throughout the universe, and then he created things to carry or reflect those things. It's interesting that God created that source, but then he says the lamp, which is a conductor of light, is the Lamb of God. Think about that. God creates light, but then he creates the sun. But in the New Jerusalem, there's still light from the glory of God. And what's the conductor of that light? The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So, um, so the first thing God made was, was light because he wants to set this pattern. You see, watch this. So again, Jesus spoke to them. See, reference back to creation. I am the light of the world. Just at the beginning, God spoke the light into existence. Jesus is saying, I'm going to speak to you and tell you that I'm the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Watch this pattern here of light and darkness all throughout Scripture. 
There's good and there's evil. When someone is good, we say that they walk in the what? The light. Where do people like to do evil? In the dark. It, there's a clear pattern there. We talk about, you know, someone's going to shed light on a certain topic for you and you learn wisdom. Wisdom is referred to as light. Foolishness is like darkness. People walking around like in the dark and not knowing what to do. We also see that faith is like your heart's being illuminated so you can believe. And when you're doubting, you're in the dark about something. And then another analogy, and these could go on and on. People who live a pure life, people who choose to be sexually pure are considered walking in the light. But people who are immoral consider doing dark deeds. The Bible refers to them as darkness. And so in 1 John 1, 5, it says that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So if we say we have fellowship with God while we're walking or living in darkness, what are you doing? You're lying. You're not even practicing the truth. And we live in a world of people, so yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, whatever, and their lifestyle totally goes contrary to the light. They're walking in darkness, but proclaiming that they know the light. And the Bible says that that, that really can't happen. It's interesting, it says that God is light, like as in pure light, and there's no darkness at all. You've seen the picture of the yin and the yang, right? The circle with half of it is black. And what's on that black side? A little white dot. And on the white side, there's a little black dot. And the way that Eastern religions teach is, and even in the best of people, and even in our gods that we believe in, there's a little bit of darkness. Not our God. In him is no darkness at all. You watch Star Wars about the Force and all that stuff. Even the best Jedi Master has a little darkness in his heart, right? And even the, the most evil Darth Vader can have a little bit of light in his heart and you know, have mercy on his son Luke or whatever. It, it's just there's all kinds of things like that. No, in the Bible, it's very clear God has no compromise in his character. Zip, zero, none. You study the ancient gods of the Romans or the Greeks, all their gods had flaws. And you, you study you know, a lot of world religions. All their gods seem to have some little flaw. Our God has none. Jesus came to the world, and he who knew no sin became sin for us. He knew no sin. Not once did Jesus think a bad thought, perform a bad deed, say a bad word. Never, ever, ever. He is perfectly God. He is light. He's pure light. 1 John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And I've often read that one with another meant us. No, no, it's, it's us and God. When you walk in the light, you're having fellowship with God. Now, that is a biblical principle that when we're all together walking in light, we fellowship with one another. But the, the context is verse same, that's fellowship with God. So God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was the evening and the morning, that's the first literal 24-hour day. The Hebrew word is yom, and like I said, 2,295 times it's referring to a literal, it's in the Bible, but nine times it means figuratively, but the context always say, like as in the day of Noah. And that gives you permission to read it differently because it read it that way. So skeptics also ask the question, well, how could there be three days now, but there's no earth and sun? If a day is measured by one rotation of the earth, you know, how could we have three days? Well, that, again, not a very intelligent question, just to be 
polite about it. If your watch stops working, does time stand still? No. <laughs> My watch could stop, and time is still going on. God established a 24-hour day, and then when he made the earth, he started spinning so it matched the 24-hour day that he preordained. When you buy a watch and it's not on, and you set the time, you are now matching your watch with reality, right? And now my watch is going to keep up with the 24-hour day. God set the timing of the earth to be what he preordained to be a 24-hour day. He started, spun the world around the sun, 365 and a third, or whatever the number is. So there would be the calendar. He didn't say, oh, let me see, how long is it going to take to get around? Oh, 365, that will be a year. No, God knew before the beginning of time what a year would be, what a day would be, what a week would be. And so, again, you're putting God in an unusual box where he's like an idiot or something. And then day two begins here. Notice that the pattern, the Hebrew pattern here is that at the end of everything, he tells you what day it was. So I'm going to just give you the preview. This is day two. God said, let there be an expanse. Some translations say the heavens. And so an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the water. So we have water, a watery planet, okay? It says it's without form. It's interesting if you drop a drop of water in space, what, take, what shape will it take on? A sphere. You saw the astronauts do that on some of the space missions where they let a liquid out or they spit a liquid out. It makes a, a wobbly sphere, okay? We don't know what shape it was or if there was any shape. But anyway, on our planet, we've got waters on the sea, and then we have waters above. What are the clouds made up of? Right. What is the ozone made up of? What is our atmosphere when we reach to outer space and they touch? It's very watery. And so God separated those two waters there. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. So God called the expanse heaven. And there's the pattern again. And there was the evening and there was the morning the second day. Dr. Henry Morris, which... Actually, before he passed away, I got to have lunch with him. He spoke at a church I was at. One of the, he's kind of like one of the premier pioneers of creation scientists as far as articulating it and writing about it. He's got several PhDs. He's an extremely smart man, but he's, he's with the Lord right now. But he said that the firmament, or the expanse, obviously could not be a solid boundary above the sky, but it essentially the atmosphere. The first heaven, or the space where the birds where, where they fly above. That's what Genesis 1.20 tells us in that firmament above. There's also a second firmament or a second heaven where God placed the sun, the moon, and the stars, stretching out in the infinite reaches of space. It's interesting. You know how we now know that the universe is expanding? Isn't that what the Bible te- told us, that God stretched out the universe? <laughs> Something that's expanding? And yet scientists were like, what? How? Now they know that the universe is expanding? And so, and God set them in the firmament and the heavens to give light upon the earth. So there's the first heaven or firmament, there's a second heaven, and then there's the third one. The firmament in our text, however, is beneath the very throne of God and above the mighty cherubim from Ezekiel chapter 1, who seem always in their scriptures to indicate the near presence of God. So the glorious firmament, brilliantly crystalline in appearance, must be the third heaven to which the Apostle Paul was once caught up in a special manifestation of God's glory in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So all that complicated talk just means that there's this. There's three heavens. The first heaven is what's above us, the earth's atmosphere, and the, and the Bible, to make it clear, says where the birds fly. The second heaven is where God placed 
the lights, and that's outer space, the sun, moon, and stars. And then the third heaven, which I believe is another dimension, but it's beyond. See, space, even though it's expanding, it's not infinite. It is magnanimous, and it is ongoing in many ways, but it does have an end. What's beyond the end of that is God's eternal throne, the third heaven, which is where the Apostle Paul was called up to. Mormons believe that this, the three heavens in the Bible are three levels of like heaven. Like when you die, you go to heaven. And certain people who are good people go to the first heaven, and some Mormons who live good lives but not perfect lives, second heaven. But the best Mormons get to go to third heaven. And that's baloney, that's not biblical. Genesis makes it very clear what the three heavens are. When you and I die, we go to the third heaven to be in the presence of God. It's something you won't see with a telescope, but the first two you can. Um, so day two, is the, it's interesting. Did you know this? I didn't know this until recently. It's the only one of the six days of creation where God does not end with, and it was good. I don't know if you noticed that as we were reading through. On day two, he does not say that. And there's different theories as to why that is. One theory is, well, God didn't actually create anything on day two. He just separated things. Okay, I like that. I can go with that. And there's other theories, but I thought it was an interesting observation there. So day three, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Did you know that everywhere on our planet you can find salt water? Everywhere. Mount Everest, the Rockies, the Alps, you can find salt water everywhere. Now, that would be for two reasons. One, from creation. But what other event would cause salt water to be everywhere? Genesis flood. And what's interesting is Second Peter talks about these two events, and these are the two events. And 2,000 years ago, Peter said this. These are the two events that people will have problems with. And what are, we, what are they teaching our kids in school? Oh, God didn't really create the heavens and earth. It's all Big Bang. Or no, we don't believe in the Big Bang anymore. We believe in the string theory. And then and there wasn't a really worldwide flood. And Peter says, because they won't believe these two, they're going to have a hard time with Christ. So you look at the way the planets are, the, the continents are now. And you can see that at one time these were all together. We call this the continental drift. The uh, archaeologists and, and uh, geologists would say this happened over millions and millions of years. But we know that they separated when God separated them, and they continued to drift uh, as agitated more by the flood. And uh, anybody know what this is called when all the contents were together? Trevor? Pangea. Look at you. Sam, you knew that too, right? Yeah, good for you. Good job. So this is an idea of what it might have looked like, but you see how they all conveniently fit together. And again, just how, let's just say that evolutionists know all this now because of their science. But Moses wrote this 6,000 years ago that the land was one and the seas were one. So this is where, again, Pangea is not a Bible word. Pan meaning covering, being all, Gia being geography. All the ge geography was fit together as one. So God called the dry land earth. And think about this. If you are a, an Israelite wandering in the wilderness and Moses is telling you all this stuff. Now, a lot of this has been passed down from oral tradition, and Moses is now recording it. But they have no idea yet whether the world is round or flat. Again, the Bible teaches that the world is round, but did they know that yet? I don't know. So he just calls it earth. Just like when we're digging our backyard, we're going to dig up some earth. You know, they, that flatness under their feet. And so God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, 
fruit trees, all bearing seed according to its kind. And now when we classify things in the, the, uh, the, the plant world, we have kingdom, phylum, class, species, all those things like that in the animal world. And the Bible makes it very clear how things produce after their own kind, that oranges won't produce apple trees and things like that. Um, he says the earth brought forth vegetation and they, they produced just like he said that it would. And there was evening and there was a morning and there we have that pattern again, the third literal day. Now, here's what a lot of people get confused on. And I think this will help you a ton. The first three days, God is forming basically arenas to put things in. So the first three days, he's saying, here's, a, here's an area, and here's an area, and here's an area, and they four, five, six, he's going to fill each area. That's why some people have a hard time with the sequential model of the six days, and they're not meant to be sequential. The first three are accomplishing one thing. It's like if you build your house, you build the master bedroom, you build the kitchen, you build the living room, and then you go back in day four and put the, the bedroom furniture here, you know, the living room furniture here, and you put the dishwasher here. And you see what, what's happening in those situations. So watch this. Day one, what does he create? Light and dark. Day four, what does he put in? The lights of the day and the night, the sun, moon, and stars. Then you see day two, he creates the sea and the skies and separates them. And then what does he do on day five? He puts fish in the seas and birds in the air. And then you see day three, he creates the dry land and the vegetation, basically jungles and the Garden of Eden, all that stuff like that. And what does he do on day, day six? He fills it with animals and humans. You see that great, amazing pattern in God's design there. So God said, let there be light in the expanse. So this is what he's doing on day four. He's filling the, the atmosphere that he had already created on day one, where he created the element, of, if you will, of light and separated from the darkness. And what, what are the signs, what are the stars, the sun and the moon for? He says that they're for signs and for seasons. Isn't it amazing that without any technology, the Phoenicians could sail around the world a few thousand years ago based on what they saw in the stars? And then using the North Star as their main point of compass, and then they can know in different times of year, different constellations would appear, and that could guide them when they're sailing in the darkest of night. By the way, did you know that we are the only planet in our solar system that can see the stars? Mars, Venus, Neptune, Pluto, all are, have, are a ga gassy cloud environment to where it's so dense and so thick that you can't see the stars. But God created us in such a beautiful atmosphere that we can see stars. Isn't that amazing? And you, you, How many of you have ever been like to Colorado or somewhere north where you're away from the city and the stars are just mind-blowing? Think about what they were like for Adam and Eve. You know, it, it's probably would have been amazing. In fact, Dr. Carl Ball has this theory. Think about it. If Adam and Eve are in a jungle environment, how did they see the stars? They probably had to go to an opening somewhere. Or maybe they get on to the back of a... What's the one with the dinosaur with the really long neck? Stegosaurus, yeah. Maybe they got on the back of a stegosaurus who lifts his head up above the canopy of the jungle and they can see the stars. I don't know, just kind of interesting romantic speculation there. But he puts these lights in the expanse... And he puts them there so that people could know when to plant, when to sail, what time of year it was. Do you know that if you read a farmer's almanac, it'll tell you when to plant certain seeds at certain times based on what the moon is doing? And it works. And God orchestrated all this this way, and people have been discovering this for years. So he, 
It's interesting, though, calls it the greater light. What is that? The sun and the lesser light, what is that? He names everything else, but he doesn't name the sun and the moon. What do you think that's about? Now, again, we can only guess, but here's what I was reading certain theologians that had a really good theory on this. At the time that Moses is writing this, what are people worshiping? The sun and the moon. And he thinks if I name them, it's going to be like I'm endorsing their gods. So I'm not going to call them that. I'm just going to, I'm going to act like they're nameless because they don't matter. I matter. It's my name that matters. And so I'm going to just call it the greater light. And of course, we, the moon being called the lesser light. And we know the moon is not actually a source of light. It's a reflection of light. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms. And, and in the Hebrew, when you repeat something, you're giving greater emphasis of it. So a swarm of swarms. It'd be kind of like say, so are you on a diet? Well, it's not really a diet diet. <laughs> you know, and say, so hey, have you eaten? Well, I'm hungry, but I'm not really hungry, hungry. <laughs> you know, and we, ha- we have all these words where we double them up, you know, and that's what, that's what Hebrew does a lot. So it's a swarm of swarms of living creatures that God has put on the planet here. So... Um, When God wanted to create fish, what did he do? He spoke to the sea, and it brought forth fish. When God wanted to create trees, what did he do? He spoke to the earth, and it brought forth trees bearing fruit. When God wanted to create man, what did he do? He didn't speak to anything. He turned himself and said, let us, the Trinity, make man in our image. Isn't that interesting? So here's what we can extrapolate from that. So if you take fish out of the water, it'll die. And you remove a tree from the ground, it also dies. Similarly, when man disconnects from God, what happens? He dies. What did God tell Adam and Eve? In the day you eat thereof, the day that you disobey me, you will surely die. You will be like a fish out of water. You will be like a tree ripped out of the soil. You will die. God is our natural environment. We were created to live in his presence, as we were singing about earlier, right? And we have to be connected with him because only in him does life exist. Remember that water without fish is still water. But the fish without the water is nothing. The soil without the tree is still soil. But the tree without the soil is nothing. God without man is still God. He doesn't need us. He wants us. But God without man, I'm sorry, but man without God is nothing. Now, you may be here this morning and say, Gary, I believe all this. I believe in the days of creation, all that stuff. And I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked you last week. But do your daily decisions show it? Your career path, is it ordained by God's will or your own will? Where you choose to live, is it God's will or is it your will? Your, your sexual identity, is it God's plan or your plan? You pick the subject. Do we as Christians, those who name the name of Christ, do our daily decisions reflect that we have a creator and we believe he made us for a purpose? Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says, Remember also what? Your creator in the days of your youth this is why we so strongly believe here at Revolution Church in children's ministry, in vacation Bible school, in camp and retreats. 
because 97% of people who come to Christ do so before age 13. Because you know what happens after age 13? You begin to think you know it all. And as you get older and older, you think you know more, pride fills up, your heart becomes hard, and yes, there are some people who come to Christ later in, in life, but the numbers are fewer and fewer and fewer. And so let me talk to those of you who are in the room that are young. Get to know God now. Because when you get older, it gets harder. You become set in your ways. You become stubborn. You become full of pride. And, he, and here Solomon calls them the evil days. They will come and the years will dry, draw nigh when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. What's the them in the years when you should have been knowing God? And that's what's going to happen. You need to get to know your creator now. It's interesting that Solomon chooses the word. He didn't say, remember your savior. Remember your Lord. Remember your master. Remember your king. He says, remember your creator. Because just like if any one of you created something, you now have a right to do what you want to do with what you made. And that's where, that's where we have a hard time as human beings. It's my life. I'm going to live my life my way. I'm going to make my decisions. And we're not willing to say, no, God, not my will, but yours be done. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Why is Jesus Lord? Because Jesus is the one who spoke the world into existence. And if you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the one who knew no sin became sin for us. He died on that cross for us. He was buried. And just like he predicted, he rose from the dead. If you will believe that, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one believes and is sa- one confesses and is saved. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray that if there's one person here this morning who doesn't acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and their creator, that they're just hoping that someday that maybe they're a good enough person that they'll go to heaven, I pray that they'll realize they are definitely not. None of us are. We are all sinners that are beyond our own ability to save ourselves. That's why Christ died. So, Father, I pray that you'd open their hearts, uh, keep Satan back from blinding their eyes so that they can let the light of the glorious gospel fill their hearts and minds. Father, I pray for those of us who do know you, that we would live as if we did, that we would live every day acknowledging that our Creator made us for a purpose, that every day has purpose, every hour has purpose, every minute. There's no minute or even second that goes by that you've not ordained that we should be doing something to your glory. Father, I pray that you just convict us of that through your Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit of God would hover over us just like it did on the the days of creation, just like it it did over Israel, just like it did over Mary when Jesus was conceived, just like the Holy Spirit hovered over Jesus at his baptism, and as the Holy Spirit hovered over the church at Pentecost. May you hover over our lives, and we be constantly reminded that the Spirit of God is pointing us to the Creator and our purpose in life. We thank you for your word. We thank you for just the depths of Genesis. And I pray that we'd build our lives on its sure foundation in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So if you made a decision to trust Christ, man, I'd love to hear from you. If you're watching online or however, this is my cell phone number. So please get in touch with me and we could talk about that. And if you know someone you think would benefit from hearing this Genesis series, 
Man, invite them. You might be thinking, oh, they would never come. You may be surprised. You'd be surprised. I mean, if Elvis could be in church, any of us can be in church. Amen? Amen. <laughs> just want to make sure you're awake there, Elvis. Just got to mess with you. Um, all right. Anyway, so pray for that person and invite them. And also, it's really cool to watch. About 21 of you are reading along with the Genesis reading plan, Origins. If you're not, go on to version and find that plan and join it. Um, I can send you an invitation, but it's a really, really good reading plan. All right, question and answer time. Um, wow, none of my normal people who help me with this are here. Let's see. Um, go ahead. Yeah, Samantha, come on and help us. She's going to use this microphone right here. So, yeah, text in your questions. I think I saw one come through already. There we go. How are you doing this morning, Samantha? Good. Good. I see Christian's got his Denver jersey on again. Good deal. If Jesus will be a benevolent dictator, does this mean we will not have free will after he returns? Why does it matter? Okay, well, that's the first question, and then he follows up with... Let, let me answer the first one first, then. So, um, there's a yes and no part to that. So, when Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom, before that, we've been caught up together in the rapture. We've experienced the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, and all these uh, glorious events are happening in heaven while hell is breaking out on earth. And you see Revelation go back and forth between what I saw in heaven and what I saw on earth. Okay, So when you are glorified in your body, your decision to follow Christ is now made permanent. You will never choose to unfollow him. Okay, The same thing we saw with the angels. The third that rebelled against them, there's no plan of salvation for them. There's only a plan of salvation for mankind. So the angels, the two-thirds that stay with God, you'll never see another fall or rebellion. Their, their decision was solidified. So when you get out of this life, your decision to follow Christ is solidified. In fact, well, let me just back up and say, you, you, you can't get unsaved, but you also don't have free will. Even though we're saved, you, can't, you, you can still choose not to follow God. But once you're glorified, you're now all your decisions are solidified, and you're like Christ. It says that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we'll not only be like him in appearance, we'll be like him in our character, which means we don't choose to sin anymore. Isn't that all amazing? I am so looking forward to that day where the struggles are ever like, oh, what do I do, what do I do? It's like you always know what to do. Now, at that same time, all those who survive the tribulation, that's who we're ruling and reigning over. And while we're not having any more kids, they will, and they will repopulate the earth. You'll see lifespans increase. And then at 1,000 years reign, the earth is repopulated. But guess what happens at the end of 1,000 years? Satan is let loose for a season, and these people who were ruling and reigning over have a chance to exercise their free will, and two-thirds of the planet follow Satan in rebellion. And so there's a war with Satan once again, just like the big Genesis there's a war with Satan. He's cast out like lightning. At the end, he's cast out even just as fast. He's put him in the bottomless pit. The war doesn't go on for any amount of time because Jesus just speaks the words and he's gone. So those who are glorified, we have no free will. Those who are living during the millennial kingdom do have free will. I hope that answered the question. Oh, and then part two. Why does it matter that the days in Genesis are literal, literal 24-hour days and this, is this a salvation issue? Can a true Christian believe the days were longer? Um, 
I don't believe it's a salvation issue ultimately. Um, I believe, the Bible makes it clear to be saved. You have to believe that Christ died for your sins, and you have to believe in the right Christ. If you believe in it, like Jehovah's Witnesses believe that um, Jesus is actually Michael the archangel, then you have the wrong Jesus, and you're trusting the wrong Jesus, therefore you will be saved. I mean, if, you, if an Uber driver you know, pulls up and you get in the wrong car, you're going to the wrong destination, okay? You've got to make sure you have the right Uber driver. Um, also, uh, Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, that God had two sons, Lucifer and Jesus, and when God gave the kingdom to Jesus, Lucifer got mad and rebelled. Wrong Jesus. You if you trust in him, that one, you're not trusting in the right Jesus. So you have to believe, trust in the right Jesus, that he died for your sins personally, and that he literally rose from the dead. If you believe that, you're saved, regardless of what you think of Genesis. Okay? So it's not a salvation issue, but some people are saved in spite of being wrong about Genesis, not because of it. So, um, but it does matter for this. If you got, here's where it really does matter. If those aren't six literal days, which, by the way, Jesus thought they were literal and Paul thought they were literal, then where is the fall? Because all of us are sinners because we're connected to who? To Adam. If there's no literal Adam, when did the first half monkey, half caveman sin? And also, evolution requires death. Survival of the fittest, right? Animals killing animals, the stronger species surviving, all that stuff. The Bible says death reigned from Adam, his fall forward. That's why animals weren't killing each other prior to the fall. People weren't killing each other. There was no death. So how do you have millions and millions of years of death when there's no sin? So it's a deep theological problem, but will it keep somebody from being saved? No, I don't think so. But if you... To go back to what Jesus says, but if you don't believe Moses, like if you say, well, I don't believe any of that stuff, then it's possible to not believe Jesus either. Well, then Jesus didn't literally rose from the dead. And again, there's a connection. Just follow churches over the last 80 years. Those who don't believe in literal six days creation, it's only a matter of time for they also don't believe in three days Jesus in the tomb and really rose from the dead. It's just, they, they start, they start you're, it's like your house, if your foundation's messed up right now, your house isn't going to fall apart yet. <laughs> but it will eventually. All right, any other questions? Yes. If time exists in heaven, doesn't mean that angels were created in Genesis first, first, uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 1. Great question. So time will not exist in the eternal state. During a thousand-year reign, we know it's a thousand years because we're measuring time. But when God does away with the, that heaven and that earth and creates a new heaven and a new earth, I think there'll be no more time. I think we'll, it'll be infinite. And so therefore, that, the second part of the question is, when did angels come into existence or are angels eternal? I, I don't know. I would think angels are not eternal. They had to have a certain point in time because only God is eternal. So sometime before creation, God probably created the angels. But who knows? I really don't know. It's, it is interesting that angels are also referred to as stars. It'd be an interesting theory that on the day that God put all the stars in the heavens, he also created angels. Possible, I guess. Patrick, you have an opinion on that? No. Okay, first time. Patrick usually is usually thinking, usually is thinking several steps ahead of me. Any other questions? Um, well, if God created all creatures, right, mm -hmm. insects and animals, and he said it was good, then why would he create mosquitoes? Right. So, you know, good question. 
You know what? According to Dr. Carl Ball, who I quote often because he's a friend of mine, he, what is an immunization shot? It's a little injection of something that's not good for you so your body can do it. That mosquitoes are basically little injecting things to boost your immune system. So they do have a good purpose after all. But roaches, I have no idea why. So, all right. Let's stand. That's good. Thank you very much, Samantha. Let's stand. We're going to uh, ask God to bless the food, and hopefully you all can stay to lunch for lunch, okay? All right.